If you turn with me on the passage on which uh, today's teaching is based, it comes from Matthew chapter 5, and I'll be reading from verses 13 to 16. It's also printed in your bulletins. Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And this is God's word. The Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, what we've been looking at for the past several weeks or the past month, the Sermon on the Mount is about the reality of the kingdom of God come down, the characteristics, the character of a people who belong in the kingdom of God. And the reality is when you come to know Jesus as your Savior and as your King, the power of the kingdom comes and shapes you in this reality. It shapes your heart, transforms you on the inside, and actually you will be able to then help to shape and restore the world around you. When the power of the kingdom comes, you don't escape from this reality, but the reality of the kingdom comes and shapes you, and God brings you, God uses you to bring the power of the kingdom into this reality. Now, if you don't embrace the reality, the truth of the kingdom of God, life is just going to be a roller coaster of ups and downs, clarity versus confusion, light and darkness. How are you going to endure that? How are you going to make sense of the suffering and the hardships of life? Because you can't. Remember in high school, if you've ever read by Voltaire, the the Age of Enlightenment uh, writer, Voltaire, the Candide, you guys remember that book, Dr. Pangloss? He glosses over everything. That's why his name is Dr. Pangloss, right? He glosses over everything. He's a panoptimist. And in that novel, Dr. Pangloss, he's confused. He's confused because he's experienced syphilis and earthquakes and suffering and murder. But to the end, he copes with it through his optimism. Or in the book, you end up like Candide. He's ever the cynic. He starts out as this optimist, and he's ever the cynic. He's ever the skeptic. It's Voltaire's way of saying that you need to be cured of your optimism. In this age of enlightenment, an enlightened soul ceases to be optimistic. And so Candide, he's disheartened by evil, and he's disheartened by disease, and these earthquakes, and the suffering, and the murder. The reality is we're in this desperate place. The Bible says the same thing. We're in a desperate place. And it's too great to justify just through our optimism. But then, Jesus says, look, your view of reality is very important. You need to have a reality beneath all the other realities that you see that's visible. You need to make sure that you have a real view of reality. And that real view is going to shape the way you view evil, the way you deal with evil. It's going to shape the way you deal with sickness and disaster and suffering and violence because the world is a dangerous place 
There are three points we're going to look at today. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. What are they? And lastly, how do you become those things? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. How do you become both? First, you are the salt of the earth. Verse 13, what is salt? Salt has many properties. Salt has many things throughout the history of the world. Salt enhances flavor. Salt is pure, a lot of things. But in the ancient times, salt had tremendous value. And you have to look at a text by which the way the author originally intended to view and, and describe it and, and relay these properties. Salt had a particular use in the ancient times because it was used as a preservative. Today we use it really as a, to enhance flavor. We don't need preservatives so much. We have refrigerators, things like that. But in the ancient times, salt was used as a preservative, and it was so valuable that the root word, it's used as the root word for the word salary. And it's probably because of the salt trade in the ancient times. And when Jesus said, by saying, you are the salt of the earth, he's saying, look, the world is, is in a desperate place. It's falling apart. Everything's falling into decay. Newton's second law, entropy. The universe is falling into constant and consistent disorder, decay. And that means that no matter, it doesn't matter what you do. You could just be sitting there and just watch TV for the next 20 years. You just sit there and what happens? You age, you gain weight, your body gets weaker, your muscles atrophy. That's the decay, you see. That's what Jesus is talking about. And it takes a tremendous amount, an intense amount of intentionality, an intense amount of work to slow that down. What is death? What is death? Your body, your molecules that were once integrated in a tight network are now starting to disintegrate. They start to fall apart into decay. It's the decay of your body taking its toll. It's at its peak. But it's not just a physical thing. It's not just, the world is not just falling apart physically. Think about your relationships. All relationships are at risk of going bad. And it takes a tremendous amount of intentionality, a tremendous amount of effort to keep relationships together. Otherwise, distrust starts to enter into that circle. It's why races can't get together. It's why races, when they get together, they can't stay together. It's why marriages, our marriages are so often a struggle even Christian marriages. The minute you stop working at your relationships, what happens? There's this, there's this order, there's disintegration, there's a dislocation, there's decay. If you look at your psyches, our emotional states, the moment you stop working at it, what happens? Anxiety sets in, depression starts to set in, you start to fall apart mentally, emotionally. If, the, if this world is all that there is because of the decay, that means the human condition renders every possible conceivable solution meaningless. Friedrich Nietzsche, he's a German philosopher uh, that really uh, came about in the late 1800s, uh, and he wrote a famous book. One of his most famous books is a story called Thus Spake Zarathustra. Now, Zarathustra is the main character of this book, and he's on a quest. He's on a quest to discover a truly morally ideal world. That's what he wants to do. And he comes to this conclusion through a series of circumstances, a series of dialogues. He comes to this conclusion that God is dead. It's not that God didn't exist. God is dead. 
And in, as, as he kind of near the end of the story, in one instance, he sees this acrobat on a tightrope hoisted high above the earth. And this acrobat, because of some chance consequences, circumstances, he plummets to the ground and hits the ground. And now he's dying. He's in tremendous pain and he's dying. And here's Zarathustra approaching this acrobat. He hovers over him and, and somehow wants to give him some comfort, but he can't. He can't give him comfort. And so this man is dying and he's lying in pain and he's afraid and he's asking Zarathustra, please pray to God for me for mercy. And Zarathustra says this, essentially, there's no need to pray because your soul will die even before your body dies. There is no such thing as a devil. There is no such thing as hell. Your soul will die sooner than your body. And so the acrobat says, well, if I die, if, 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 if that's the case, if I die, I lose nothing and I gain nothing. I'm kind of like an animal. I'm just like an animal. I might as well have just walked around on four feet. And Zarathustra responds, no, think about it. For those of you who are alive, there is now nothing that is impermissible. There is nothing that is not allowable. You can do anything you want because there is no such thing as morality. Everything's fair game. There are no consequences. And so danger and violence are your calling. That's what he says. If there's no God, what's the point of morality? Life is meaningless. We're just, we're just molecules that have kind of bounced together by chance. Here today, gone tomorrow. A bunch of chemicals that happen to come together. And here today, gone tomorrow. That's our visible reality. That's what science is telling us. That's what the world says. That's our visible reality. Then who cares about morals? Who cares about virtue? What's the point of living a good life? You carve out your own version. If science says the world is here by chance and the world is falling into decay, that means everything is meaningless. There is no earthly solution uh, to bring meaning into the world. And if that's the case, then beauty, beauty, relationships, everything is just uh, a result of evolution and biology, survival of the fittest, and if that's, a, that's the case, and so is rape, so is murder. Violence is just natural. That's what it is. In the ancient Near Eastern uh, cultures, which is when this passage was written or taught, there were no refrigerators. And so there was this great need, a greater need to preserve your food, a greater need to preserve your meat because the decay otherwise will set in. And salt, when it gets in, the fruit, you know, it has to get in. It immerses into what it's getting into, right? What it starts to do, it starts to slow down the decaying process. The meat can last a little bit longer, a lot longer actually, because the salt actually prevents the decay. Salt by nature, first it has to get in, immerse, and then because of its properties, it becomes very, very effective. Very effective. How do you apply that? What is Jesus saying here? If you know somebody whose life is falling apart at church, if you know communities that are just falling apart, that's, by the way, why Metro is planted in the city, because the reality of our condition is far more visible overtly through the tensions and the relationships within communities, racial communities, neighborhoods, education, socioeconomic. You see all these tensions 
and you see somebody here falling apart at church, falling into decay relationally. Maybe their marriage is falling apart. Maybe their kids are falling apart. Or maybe they're falling apart financially. They're in tremendous debt. And even socially, they're in a tremendous loss. Maybe in the neighborhood, there's tremendous debt, a loss there, and we can get in. Maybe physically, you can find somebody who's sick. Or psychologically, they're depressed. Socially, they're lonely. Maybe you know somebody whose character is, falling, is making them fall apart. They may not see it, but they're falling apart in character. And so they're arrogant or selfish. Most of us say this. Whether you look at the neighborhood or whether you look at one another, you say, listen, I'm not going to get into that because then there's risks to me. There's a danger there. I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get too involved. I mean, I'll, I'll join with them in community group. I'll fellowship with them at church. But if I get too involved, it's draining. It takes too much work. I mean, if we're really honest, sometimes we're afraid to get involved because then we might get caught in the fray. Maybe we have to take sides. Maybe we're going to, challenging somebody is hard work. It takes a tremendous amount of mental capacity, emotional capacity, a lot of time, a lot of resources. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Go in. Go in. You don't think he was thinking about the risks? You don't think he was thinking about or talking about the risks? You know, Rodney Stark, he's a professor of sociology and comparative religion at the University of Washington. If you're from that area, it's UW, right? Uh, He wrote a book, a popular book, a New York Times uh, bestseller, I believe, called The Rise of Christianity. And there he answers a question. This is a scholarly commentator answering the question, how in the world did Christianity make it out of the first century? How did it make it out of the first century? Because its claims were too great, too impossible to believe. And uh, he says... You know, if you look at the claims even of the resurrection, because of the cultural structure and the way they viewed death and life, the resurrection itself was something that was a non sequitur. It wasn't even conceivable nor believable. It's not something that was even considered a good thing in some circles. And so this book is kind of a scholarly insight on facts that showed how Christianity survived. He was looking at data. How did Christianity survive? Because it had to have been more than just beliefs. And so he says, you know, in the first and second centuries in Europe, there were the plagues in the first and second centuries. These plagues wiped out a quarter to a third of the world's population. A quarter to a third of the world's population. And Stark quotes this bishop who lived in the city during that time, and he says this, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. What is Rodney Stark saying here? He's saying that while everyone was leaving the city because of the plague, because of the decay, Christians identified the decay and went in. They went into the decay. Just like their Savior, Jesus. And they died helping 
to bring life to those who are dying. And he quotes this bishop and he says, the bishop writes, it is a time of unimaginable joy. People flock to the church after. Look, when you go in, uh, you're taking on a burden. It's hard. When you give to somebody who's suffering financially, you run the risk of never recovering what you gave them because there's no guarantee that they can pay you back. Their poverty essentially becomes yours. You become lesser in helping them to become greater. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Salt goes into what's falling apart and helps to preserve. You are the salt of the earth. The second point is, what is light? In ancient times, there was no electricity, no refrigerators, no electricity. We take these things for granted. But there was no electricity. And so if you didn't have a lamp, if you didn't have a good candle, you were enveloped in complete darkness after the sun went down. There were neighborhoods and communities wrapped in darkness at night. It was a very insecure time, a very unsafe time. And so you were covered by, if you were in that darkness, you were covered by disorientation, covered by disorder, insecurity, dislocation, you were lost. If you were traveling and if you didn't get to your destination by a certain point, you were lost. And Jesus Christ says, our visible reality right now, what you see, you think you see, you are wrapped in that darkness. And we're just merely trying to navigate through the world covered by this disorder and lostness. But then in verse 14, he says, you, in that darkness, you are the light of the world. You're like a city on a hill. You're like a lamp that's been placed on a stand. Verse 15. What's a city? What's a city on a hill? In ancient times, it was very rare to build a city, an entire city, on top of a hill because it took a lot of work took a lot of time. They didn't have the type of equipment that we have today. And so it, it was very costly. It takes a lot of work. But if you had a city or if you were part of a city on a hill at night, imagine all these people living in the city, turning on their lamps at night in their homes. The entire city would become like a candle. It would illuminate the entire city for miles for all to see. That entire city on a hill was like a lamp on its stand. And so everyone can see, if you were traveling to that city, you could see for miles away like a lamp that's been placed on a stand in a house. And Jesus says, you, the church, are like a city on a hill. You are like lots of lights illumining the world with true light. And notice, Jesus doesn't say, you are little suns. You are little stars. He says, you're a lamp. What's the difference between a sun and a lamp? You see, the sun is a source of light. He's saying, you're not the source of light. It's not inside you naturally. You were like a lamp. And a lamp is a mere instrument from which the power actually is displayed. The power actually illumines. In other words, if your current reality 
if the people around you at work don't see the fruit of your transformation, I'm going to say this very, because we're all working, a lot of work here, workers here. If your current reality, the people who are around you at work, I don't care if you're in a Christian environment or a non-Christian secular environment, it doesn't matter. I don't care if you are in a seminary or if you are in a secular university, and there are many here in this city, but both, too many. It doesn't matter. Because if people around you do not see the fruit of your transformation, the fruit of your growth, the fruit of how the gospel is changing you and shaping you, if they don't see a different life at the end, there may be no light. You may not have light. You are not part of a city on a hill. And Jesus is very clear about that. Verses 14 to 15. City on a hill cannot be hidden, he says. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. What is he saying? He's saying, yes, Christianity, yes, salvation is deeply personal, but it's not just personal. Yes, salvation is deeply individual, but it's not only individual. That's what he's saying. You are meant to illumine the darkness for all to see in our workplaces, our dark places, aren't they? Our workplaces are dark places. If you ever experienced real darkness, there are people, we have enough people in this in this room, we can say this, that there are people in this room who've experienced some real dark times, either personally, spiritually, uh, emotionally, or mentally, or, uh, or just circumstantially, just real darkness in their lives. You know that when you're experiencing that, it doesn't matter what's being said to you, right? There's this disorientation and confusion that is just overbearing and overwhelming. What is, you know, you, you could be depressed or just com- you just feel completely lost. What does a true believer do? What does a true follower of Jesus do? What does a true Christian do? Do they just quote you some Bible verses to go back home with? Give you some good advice? A nice hug and some good advice? Some cold comfort? No, come on. You know that. A real friend, a real body, a real organism that is, that is alive is going to be actively present in every way to feed and to nurture the rest of the body. They're going to give you hope. They're going to help you navigate through that darkness because you're lost. You're disoriented. But if they are light, they will help navigate you through that darkness to be able to bring you hope, a reality beneath what is visible, beneath what you can see because you can only see so far in the dark. They're going to bring you the gospel of the kingdom, a hope where one day, what? every single one of your deepest desires will be fulfilled. One day when the greatest hurts in your life will become undone, unraveled, to see a joy that subsumes all that pain and darkness around you by the grace of God and Jesus Christ. That's new life. That's what new life is. And if you have that light, if you are that light, you can navigate even your most dark times. And if you can't, there are people around who can help you navigate some dark times. Metro is a very relatively new church, and we've encountered many people who've been brought to healing through some very, very, after some very, very dark times. By nature, what is darkness? By nature, darkness removes form. When you're in darkness, there's no form. It doesn't matter how beautiful someone is. It doesn't matter what you have because you can't see it. It takes away form. It takes away structure. It takes away shape. That's the nature of darkness. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. And what? Now the earth was, out, was without form and empty. It was shapeless and empty. And God said, what? Let there be light. Darkness takes away shape and form. You lose yourself in darkness. But light brings form. Light creates. And so when Jesus says, you are salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and then hide it or put it under a bowl. You are meant to illumine the places around you that are filled and enveloped by the darkness, by the evil, by the danger. You see, how do you become salt and light? How do you become salt and light? John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we see the end of uh, a week-long period in the ancient times called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's probably one of those widely observed feasts in Jewish history in the Old Testament. And uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, Jesus is, is standing in the temple. And everything is being taken down. It's the, and imagine like you go to a retreat, and the retreat lasts for an entire uh, week. A better analogy is probably uh, there are Indian weddings. Indian weddings can go anywhere between, what, three days to a week to maybe even longer than that. Long, lengthy weddings, right? And people are just celebrating, having a great time. But when it's all over, when it's all over, maybe for some of you, the end of a honeymoon, I don't know. You know, you go away for a week, and you know, you just, towards, in the beginning of the week, you're, it's great, it's celebratory, it's festive. But as you near the end, you know it starts to become somber because you're like, it's over. It's going to be over. It's not even over yet, and you're like, it's going to be over. You know, two days left, oh, it's going to be over in two days. A day's left, you're like, oh, it's going to be over tomorrow, and then it's the day. At the Feast of Tabernacles, as you near the end of that week-long celebration, and it was one of the three most widely celebrated feasts, a whole week, maybe even longer, there they take down all the temple ornaments and the decorations. And one of the biggest ornaments were these candelabras that were set up by the openings of the temple. And these things were incredibly bright, these giant candelabras. Now remember, in Jerusalem, here's the temple, and you have these lights that are shining for like a week long. It would illumine the temple. It would illumine all of Jerusalem, for that matter, the hill on which the temple resided. It would just illumine everything, the entire place. It was literally a lamp on a stand. But now the feast is over, so the candles are out. And it was reminiscent. The reason why those candles were put up is because it was reminiscent of a time when the Israelites were wandering in the desert. And what led them through the desert in that time of darkness at night? A giant pillar of fire. God came down in a pillar of fire and literally guided the Israelites through the darkness. And so that's what these candelabras represented. But now there was a time when in the Old Testament, in the temple, when you literally saw the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory of God lift up from the temple and depart. And from that day on, God never resided physically in that temple again. You never saw that again. And so this feast was reminiscent of that experience, that narrative. And so as you start the celebration, everyone is joyful and celebratory. But as it comes to a close, people were somber and then the candles are blown out. And there Jesus in John chapter 8 is standing before the temple. And what does he say? I am the light of the world. That's what he says. Brings color to what he's saying, doesn't it? 
He says, I am the light of the world. What he's saying there, he's saying, I am that pillar of fire that came down to be with my people. I am the, the pillar of fire that guided the people through the darkness and navigated. I came in to save you from decay, and I came down to give you light in this present world, in this darkness. The true salt and light of the world, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself. And if you see the desperation in your life, the decay and the darkness, and you place your trust in Jesus as your Savior and as the kingdom of God who has come down, who came to save us from this desperation, from our sin. Think about this. What does light do? What does light do? Light is beautiful. Jesus Christ is beautiful and glorious and righteous. That beauty, when you place your trust in Christ, when the gospel has redeemed you and you look at his person and his work and it has saved you, Jesus' beauty, Jesus' glory, Jesus' righteousness, that beauty and glory and righteousness transfers into you. That light becomes you. You are the light of the world. Light brings truth. Light brings reality, right? Because if you see something in the dark, you're squinting, you can kind of make things out, but in plain light. That's why a lot of not, not a lot of crimes committed in broad daylight. That's the reason why. Jesus says, I am the truth. Truth is the basis by which we judge and see everything else around us. If you're in a dark room and you, you're going to stumble, if it's pitch black, you're going to stumble. There could be furniture around. You're going to stub your toe. A lot of pain getting from one end of the room to the other. You're going to bump yourself. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get damaged. But all it takes is what? One pure ray of light. One pure ray of light. And you have a framework by which you can navigate the rest of your room, the rest of the world around you, the rest of life. What else does light do? Light exposes. Light interprets. And so when you become a Christian, your sins are exposed. And when, you first, if you, when you've been in darkness for a long time and the light dawns, you squint and it's painful at first, your sins will be exposed. But now you have something real to interpret your life with and also to interpret your brokenness and the brokenness and the suffering around you. What else does light do? Light guides. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Light gives us life. If you don't have life, wherever there's no light in your home, it runs the risk of what? Mildew and mold, all the bad things that can come in. Then you have disease and suffering and death, right? All those kind of things, right? If you don't have light, you don't have life. Everything dies. Everything decays. It gets moldy. And so if you believe in Jesus, you become salt and light. His beauty and his glory and his righteousness passes and transfers into you. Jesus has come in, literally come in, and that power becomes very effective to save us from decay, all decay, and fuel us to become a light to others. What do salt and light do? They bring new life. They bring hope. They bring joy. They make other things beautiful. But it's only going to be effective if it gets in. It's only going to be effective if it goes in. True salt and light attacks decay. True salt and light attack darkness. On one hand, a Christian is, is you know, is not just, um, well, a Christian in the home or in the office is going to bring honesty 
into his home or his office. It's going to bring integrity into his home or his office. It's going to bring character into the home, into the office. It's going to bring hope and love and great counsel and faithfulness and joy. But you need to get out of that Western application of this for a minute. You've got to step out of the Western individualistic aspect of this text. He said, when he said, when Jesus says, you are salt and light, he's talking about you all as a body are salt and light, a city on a hill. That's what he says. Right? St. Augustine says the church is an alternate city within a city. A church is a city, an alternate city with a different king inside the city, this earthly city. What does an earthly city have? An earthly city has structure and commerce and education and architecture and culture and art and relationships. That's what makes up a city. It's why people your age, people around the world are flocking to the cities. 50% of the world today lives in the several largest cities in the world. Can you believe that? Unbelievable. The city. And there, St. Augustine says that a, the, a church is a city within that city, an invisible alternate city within the city. Because a city has commerce and education and the arts and culture and education, relationships. Christians in an alternate city do commerce and education and architecture and art and culture and relationships in an alternate way, in an alternate way, because they serve a different king. We are a colony. We are a colony of heaven inside the city. So Christians are going to handle their money differently. They're going to handle power differently if they have it. They're going to handle sex differently. But also they're going to handle criticism differently. They're going to treat people above them differently. They're going to treat people below them differently. Light makes whatever it touches more beautiful. And so Christians, people whom Christians come into contact with, people who may be dishonest or greedy, or by the way, we're all dishonest. We're all liars. We're all filled with greed, right? If it were not the grace of God redeeming us, making you light, making you salt, what happens now you enter into this world of dishonesty and brokenness and greed and gossip and all these things, promiscuity, and yet Christians also enter into a world of injustice and corruption and racism and the social inequities of our day, the social inequities of the city. You're not just looking at yourself anymore. You're looking outside. And so verse 16, Jesus says, Let your light shine that they may see your good deeds. That Greek word, good good deeds, is the word kalos, right? Kalos. It's not good as in let them see how beautiful you are. That's the way I used to read this. Let them see how beautiful and good you are. And they'll say, oh, man, I should really go to church because I want to be like him. How How did he turn that way? I want to go see that. And that might happen. That might happen for a few people. You must have been a really terrible person, right? For them to say, wow, I need to go to church to see this person who's gone through some tremendous transformation, and that may be in part. But that's not what, what Jesus is saying here. The Greek word here is not let them see your good deeds as in how beautiful you are, but as in the fruit that you are producing. Let them see how beautiful you're making the world around you. Let them see your good deeds. Let them see you coming in contact with people, and as a result, they are being changed. 
Let them see that. You have a community of people doing that. What neighborhood wouldn't want a church on their block? What community wouldn't want that? Think about this. You had just an, you had an amazing meal. You had an amazing meal. When's the last time you said, man, that's some good salt? Salt brings out the best in the meal. You say, wow, that meal. If anything, the salt brought out the best in that meal. You cured this meat perfectly, you say. And so Jesus says, if salt has lost its saltiness, it's worthless except to be thrown out and trampled. So how do you restore it? If you've lost your saltiness, how do you restore it? You've got to look to Jesus. Jesus Christ came to preserve his people. But by doing it, he became trampled by men. Jesus Christ of highest worth came down and became worthless and trampled by men. On the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, I have lost my saltiness. I have become sin. I have become worthless. And so the wrath of God is trampling over me. Jesus Christ said, I am the light of the world. But John chapter 1 says, the light shines in the darkness, but what? The darkness has not understood it. What that means is, in the darkness, a ray of light has pierced the darkness, and yet we have rejected it. We have turned a blind eye to it. And so on the cross, what happens? There was darkness. The skies were enveloped in darkness. And when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, now I am experiencing the ultimate darkness of the wrath of God over me. Why? So that you can experience the beauty and the glory. I've experienced the ultimate lostness. Why? So that you, his people, could be found. I've experienced the ultimate trampling of the wrath of God. Why? So that you would become valuable and effective. On the cross, Jesus Christ experienced the ultimate disintegration, the ultimate decay, the ultimate darkness, the ultimate disorientation and dislocation from God, his Father, the ultimate light, so that when we believe in him, when we see what he's done on the cross for us, salt comes in, light gets in, and it does a tremendous amount of work in us, and you become salt and light. Do you believe it? As we come to the table today, let's look and behold the beauty of Jesus, and let's be shaped by him. That's what it means when we're taking this in. We're being shaped we're saying we desire and we are committed to being shaped by the beauty and glory and saltiness and light that is Christ. Let's pray together.